0: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Conversation with Buddy. We drop a new podcast every Friday morning with a new story that will pack someone, and we hope that someone is you. Uh, thank you to all the listeners each week that take the time and hear our stories, and we know it's going to impact somebody. We hope that somebody is you. So please take a moment to subscribe and just share this on your social favorite social media platform. Uh, give us a review, and uh, we appreciate that. Uh, quick announcement, here on June 10th, there's going to be a men's conference here in Salem, Oregon. It's called the Pacific Northwest Men's Conference. Should be about 2,000 men there. It's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, get signed up right away. Uh, this morning, uh, I have a new guest, and I'm excited to introduce him. His name's Manny Martinez. Welcome, Manny. Thank you, buddy. Good to be here. It was good to have you, man. So we're going we're gonna to chat about you, and uh, you and I met, I think, about three months ago, give or take, mm-hmm. uh, Bonnie Miletto introduced us uh, virtually, and uh, we met, and we had a great conversation at uh, Ikebox. Remember that? I do, indeed. You know, I didn't know anything about you, um, but there's a story here that I can't wait to, to let this unfold. But So, what I know about you is you're a private guitar instructor. You have 50-plus students. It's pretty amazing. I think you're around 30 years old. at uh, 38 you're 38 mm-hmm. dude i was off for about eight years, so <laughs> i'm flattered thank you 30 38 it's all the same <laughs> uh you are the leader of manny martinez jazz quartet that performs regularly in and around salem mm-hmm. you have a bachelor's degree uh in music from berkeley college of music in boston massachusetts uh, you're a leader of a rock band Burst of Happiness, I see that on social media everywhere, so mm. I want you to talk more about that, I don't really know the full story but you guys are recording your first full length original rock album this August, so you know, based upon that, life's pretty good man, You, you, everything's great there's been no problems in your life but I think there's a deeper story here and I've heard part of it and I want to hear a little bit more so, wh- so I don't have a segue to this here, where do you want to go do you want to back up a little bit
1: Well, I'll start with where things are at right now, and things are going great. I I will say I'm a very blessed individual, and I I thank God every day for for all the blessings, including the second chance in life that I've been given that so many people don't get. Um, My bread and butter is teaching private guitar lessons. It has been for the last uh, couple of years. I have a studio in downtown Salem off of Commercial Street. I have 50 plus private students, which is something I'm very proud of. It took a long time to build up that clientele. And not only do I have 50 plus uh, students, but they're all very good people. I got a great stable of uh, students that study with me and they're just, they're a great, great group of people. They come to the shows and they're very supportive and a lot of them have become friends. Um, yeah. So it's uh, that's been a, a huge
0: blessing. And real, real quick, what, what are the ages of your students?
1: Uh, I think the youngest is like eight or nine, and yeah. the oldest is about to turn seventy-six.
0: So yeah. for a guy like me, if <laughs>
1: yes. all I think wasn't. Yeah, I get the question of like what what the age limit is, and usually like around third or fourth grade is when a, a student would be really capable of taking the guitar on if they're pretty mature for their age. And kids' hands are pretty small at that age, so usually you want to start them with piano, vocals, or drums. Uh, around 7 or 8 years old, they can be comfortable with the guitar, but then it's a matter of if the, they can sit in a chair for 30 minutes straight. <laughs> it's, a, it's a question yeah. to ask of uh, the adults sometimes, too. but yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, the, the guitar lessons are going great. And then on top of that, the jazz quartet has really taken off. I spent last year really focusing on making the jazz quartet, um, viable, uh, through connections at the Salem chamber of commerce, which I'm a active member of and just the music community and, and a lot of, uh, grinding. Uh, We've gone from playing the typical kind of like bar gigs that are not terribly lucrative to now we get a lot of the highly sought after kind of gigs in town and the private events and the, the nice places in town that actually pay musicians well, so that's going really well. And then the real dream has always been to have like the Pink Floyd level rock band. And that's where I have my original music, where I'm the front man and sing all original music. And that has been quite an undertaking.
0: So you're a singer, songwriter as well as a
1: guitar player? Yes. Most people know me for being a guitar player, and makes sense because that's the majority of what i've done yeah. in in salem um but i'm starting to make the shift into being more of a vocalist as well and for birth of happiness B O am the front man like i have another guitar player that does a lot of the heavy lifting for me so that i can play the role of front man and yeah, man. jump around and scream and you know do the whole crazy eyed thing to the crowd
0: I can't wait come watch you uh, yeah
1: uh, well, i i didn't know that yeah you know? yeah it's a lot of fun and and there's something very therapeutic about you know screaming into a microphone especially when it's something that you really really believe yeah uh to put to really powerful uh, uh rock music that i've written with my mentor a guy named brian baker who is a guy named uh, uh the guy that i met at uh berkeley and he's like a mozart type music genius um, so he has his fingerprints are in this music um, in a considerable way. And that's part of what makes this project very, very special. Yeah. Um, we have been rehearsing this particular group of guys has been rehearsing the last eight or nine months. Uh, we rehearsed in an unheated garage during the winter. I like the joke that it was like the scene from Rocky four, you know, where it's like he, his, 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 opponent Drago is in like the super, sophisticated like high-tech gym but Rocky's out there like carrying a log and like the Russian tundra and I, I say to the guys in the band it's like when they make the boh movie this makes it much more compelling you know like we have to suffer a little bit <laughs> I love it yeah embrace the suffering man indeed so yeah things are things are going uh uh very well we played the first big premiere show of birth of happiness at the yard a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was you know hundreds of people there. Um, we had the full light show, and yeah. we we enlisted the help of a lot of people in town to make that show the success that it was. The video is being put together as we speak, and that'll be up on the website birthofhappiness dot com pretty soon. And we're going to we're going to use that to to get more gigs and we're already getting a lot of offers for some pretty nice stuff. Um, so once we have the video and once we have the album recorded, which is like the real, that's the, 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 the main, the main event is getting that album recorded in August. It's expensive. Um, and this last year has been about raising the funds to make that happen. Once we have the album recorded and all the other things that we need, we're going to hit it really hard and, the, the goal is to have a West coast tour yeah, have it be successful too, not just like calling a bunch of random bars down the West coast. I'm talking about getting like in some premier places and, and walking away with a profitable situation.
0: So yeah, this is all you're to do. And these are all original songs Everett, me and my mentor, Brian. Yeah. Brian Baker. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, and do you have a show set up here, like in Salem, like Felsenor or anything coming? Yes.
1: The next one is at the Bad Space, which is part of, uh, Santiam Brewery. Um, it's a newer venue. Um, it's very cool. It's a, it's like a real rock and roll club. Um, and there's a, a stage and the lights and the sound is all built in. So it's going to be a lot less of a headache than what we had to do with the, with our last show where we had to bring all of that stuff in. Right this we can just kind of like walk in with our with our instruments and set up quickly and and play so it's um the the other show was great because it was it's a huge venue and there's always a ton of people there but it was just more complicated so um, this is going to be fundraiser number 2 to try to continue to raise funds for this album and it's on June 23rd at the Bad Space okay
0: Let's get that out there. I'm sure it'll be on social media. And how much money are you guys trying to raise anyway? Around twenty five oh, thousand dollars. Yeah. Piece of cake, right?
1: Yes it's 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 one of those numbers that it's like it's a it's a big number and a small number at the same
0: time. Right, right. <laughs> it's big there because you've never been there before, but yeah. relatively speaking, it's not a big. number. I know
1: that like five years from now, I'm gonna look back and at this and laugh at the fact that yeah. like the twenty five grand was the hill to climb, yeah. but. I understand that it had to. This is like the perfect story. It had to it had to be this way to scratch and claw for every little bit of it, so that there could be full appreciation for for the effort. Um, if it's a funny thing how how God works, where two years ago I thought the best thing that could have happened in my life would to have been gifted like fifty grand by someone or something, so that I could just knock this thing out but the music would not have been as good as it is right now i never would have joined the chamber and developed all of the bit all the connections that i have now and friendships that i have now so that there's actually a town of people that are like eagerly anticipating the release of this album i wouldn't have met you probably i wouldn't have met bonnie so it was through having to to wait and grind that i've taken this path Um, of going, going to places like the chamber and other networking groups and really getting involved in the community and making this like a community effort and it makes the story so much, so much better. And that's part of what people love always is a, is a story. It's one of the most ancient principles of human existence is like give people a great story. And this is, this is basically like the, the musical Rocky. And that's uh, that's, that's, what I, that's what I like to think of. like This is like the Rocky Balboa story, except, you
0: know. It wouldn't be exciting if you show up and everything was perfect, you right. pay your money and There's no story there. Yeah. But the adversity that you go through, that's what people love to see is, what did you go through to get it to where you're at? How, how bad did you bleed to arrive? Yeah. And nobody arrives, but, and I like that you're, you're talking about community effort. This is not just you, Manny, is you bringing everybody uh, into the story. I want to be a part of your story. You know, I'm with, it's your story, but I want to be a part of it, then You're, you're asking me and and Richie here too. You're asking us to be a part of your story. I, I love the
1: the fact that it's it's turned out this way, and it's it's a community effort. It's like this is going to be Salem's album. I want to, I want I want to do something that has this has the potential to be like a major musical. Accomplishment that happens right here in in downtown Salem, and I mean, there's been a lot of great talent and a lot of great bands in in Salem, but I'm I'm going for something that is going to compete with like the top level rock and roll bands out there, and and have it have it be something that goes nationwide. And I love the idea of it originating here in in Salem. Yeah. Hey,
0: real quick, uh, you mentioned Pink Floyd, but it who's your favorite rock and roll band? Is it Pink Floyd or, or... Yeah, maybe a top five.
1: Well, Pink Floyd is definitely what started the whole uh, obsession. Yeah. Uh, I was always really into music. I can remember being six six years old and listening to cassette tapes of Meta- Metallica and Michael Jackson. They're two different styles, but they they both are are great. Uh, and the guitar playing always spoke to me. I always thought that the guitar was just like the coolest thing. And I still think it's the coolest thing. It it simply is the coolest thing. It's not, it's not really even up for discussion. It's just like guitar equals cool. But the, the guitar always spoke to me. My parents were never really that into the idea of me playing the guitar as a kid. I played the trumpet, which was really important because I played all the way through high school. My high school band teacher, Mr. Paxton, was one of the great influences of my life, one of the best men I've ever known. And that trumpet playing experience was vital because I got to learn how to read music really well. That gave me a lot of tools when I went to music school that a lot of the other guitar players didn't have. But when I was 13 years old, I walked into the room and my sister was watching the wall the pink floyd uh, film version of the album the wall and i sat down i had no idea who pink floyd was never heard of him i sat down listened to the music and it blew me away i was just like spiritual experience yeah. and i got the album and started listening to it just at 13. A, a, at 13 i was obsessed with the album the wall by pink floyd i couldn't stop listening to it and the guitar playing especially mm-hmm and all guitar nerds out there know that the the guy from Pink Floyd David Gilmour is like yeah. you know guitar god um and he's the man and and so much of it is not just the his guitar playing but the context in which the guitar playing exists which is the Pink Floyd songs um so that's when I went to my mother and I was like I don't understand why you won't let me try and that broke her heart and of course like she was had to she gave in and, uh, we went to the music store and signed up for lessons. And the funny thing was that they thought it would be a deterrent to get me private lessons. Like, okay, so you want private lessons? Like, well, it's like, you want, you want to play the guitar. So we're going to get you private lessons and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sure. Great. And this, this, from day one, I remember the moment that I took the guitar out of the case and I was like, this is it. This is my thing I'm going for. This is the dream. And it's like, I'm either going to make it or I'm going to die trying. That's what I said. That's a commitment I made to myself when I was 13 years old.
0: That's a great story. All right. Well, take us back a little bit. I want to hear a little about your story, uh, just life in general. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how you grew up, how many siblings you got, how many parents, Are your parents still married. Uh Uh, Tell us about that, and then to your journey where you are today. You're having extreme success, but not everybody has extreme success overnight. Tell us a little bit about your journey.
1: Yeah, the the punchline of my of my story at the moment is like I like to start out with all these great things are happening. The rock band is about to become become a thing. I'm literally going after the boyhood dream and have a realistic chance of making it happen. I mean, who knows? Any anything can happen. I mean, you, know, you, you have this horrible accident that just happened on the highway yesterday, and 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 seven people lose their lives and. I'm always aware that just like, you know, every day is a gift, but I, for the, for the moment, God willing, like I'm going for the dream and I have a realistic chance of making it happen. And that is just, that's, there's, I think there's like no better way to live than to be like going after your dream in a real way and have your dream be something that's good for the world. Right now, this is where things are now, but four years ago I was basically as close to dead as you can possibly be you wouldn't recognize me if you saw me four years ago. I was about 100 to 120 pounds heavier than I was. And I was severely, severely addicted to alcohol. And I didn't realize at the time, number one, that I was an alcoholic. But then once I got into recovery, I was just like, oh man, not only are you an alcoholic, but you're an extreme case. Like even people in recovery are just like, wow, like that's a low. This is four years ago, four years, 34 years old. Mm -hmm. You're almost dead. Yes. Yeah, should be dead. I mean, it's a. I'm in the the miracle category, not not only to be alive, but to be in good health too. I mean, it's like it doesn't make sense other than like hand of God saying like no, 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 like I have something that I have for you to do. Like you're not supposed to die like this. Okay, but I think you only get like one or two like stern warnings like that before it's like okay, now you get it. Okay, now now you got to learn how to learn to behave right. Um, but going back to your question, I, I grew up in Baltimore, um, not like in the city, but like in the nice suburb part in Baltimore County, I went to Delaney high school, which is important to my story because that's where Mr. Paxton was.
0: Okay, And he, he, and he was your high school.
1: He's my high school band. Okay. And and in fact... he, he's like, he's the, the kind of guy that every, every man should strive to be like, you know, he was, um, he was a, a war hero, but also uh, after he his service, he went to to school and got and studied psychology and music. And he was like the if you ever seen the the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, he's Mr. Holland. I mean, he touched so many lives. When he passed away, there was there was like a thousand people that showed up to his um to his uh, his service, his uh, celebration of life and those people that that had him as a teacher in elementary school and 30 years later they travel across the country to pay their respects like that's the kind of impact that this guy had on people's lives so he was my band teacher and it's like he he's one of the guys that I credit towards like planting a seed that probably kept me alive because it was just like that that little bit of light that I could you know grab onto, just like that kind of influence of like you know, remember remember that guy and that he believed in you right so um, with the high school at, at Delaney he was a huge influence I ended up going to uh, Berkeley College of Music which is regarded as one of the top schools in the world. Um, that's where I met Brian uh, when we were teenagers you know I was like seventeen he was 16 and he was on a full scholarship and uh, he he was the the genius of the of the class but um <laughs> yeah. He, and 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 part of the story that's interesting is that like I always was like so envious of, of Brian. He was the top guy. Like when the famous musicians would come in, uh, he was like in the all-star student band, and yeah. I was one of the, more of like the like the slightly above-average students. I was like toiling away in the practice room, you know. Um, and twenty years later is when I reach out to him at the beginning of COVID to take some lessons and that began the whole process of us writing an album together. So you guys had not touched base during this time? No, and I didn't even really know him when I went to Berkeley. I had like two two encounters with him, but I just I was a fan basically. Um and at the beginning of COVID, he was offering some some uh, discounted lessons kind of like as a service. Um and I decided to take a few just more from like a recovery aspect, like okay, let's um let's humble let's humble ourselves and and see if this guy has some advice to offer and that was the beginning of putting together the the music that we're about to record in august so we've worked together for about three years but during berkeley um i basically just sat in a practice room and practiced eight to ten hours a day and that's like on top of going to class yeah i was i was um living a very unhealthy lifestyle as far as just working all the time. I would sleep like two hours before class and two hours after class and then practice like eight to ten hours a day. You know, the people at Berkeley thought I was odd because I practiced that much. And that's like at one of the most, you know, competitive music schools in the world. Um, so I was I I just did that for like three years or so and burned out, you know, predictably. So and I looked around and I saw like all the other college kids were having fun and they were going out and partying and stuff. And I was like, I want, I want some of that. That looks fun. I need some friends and you go out and you start drinking and, and I, I didn't really start drinking until I was like 20 years old, which for a lot of alcoholics is kind of like late to the game, but in, in true like manny fashion, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to be the best at it. Right. That's kind of the to wire. Yeah, exactly. So. Once I started drinking, I started hitting. I, I started hitting it hard, man, and and uh, very quickly uh, became became addicted. I would say from by age twenty two, I was um, full blown alcoholic, wow. and that that's when I went on. Um, it was when I went on my cruise ship gig. Uh, that was a six month contract. About a year after that, so you're
0: playing music on a cruise yeah. ship. Okay.
1: The cruise ship gig is sort of like um, if you watch like one of those late night shows, like you know Kimmel or Colbert or whatever. They have the seven piece band yeah. and they, they perform a lot of different functions. You know, someone comes up on stage and they play, and um, but they can also entertain the crowd for you know long periods of time. So the the cruise ship gig was actually really beneficial musically. It's a hard gig to get. You have to be a really good player. Um, you come out a much better musician. But then you have the environment, um, and it was just like a normal thing for everyone to just be drinking like heavily, or even alcoholically on the ship. So it's like it wasn't unusual. But then you get back on land, and you you've developed that addiction, and then there you go. Now now you've got uh, you got a demon attached to you. So that was base- basically the beginning of a downward spiral that lasted. For about another six years or so until I was like 29 years old, I was living in Baltimore playing gigs, bar gigs, and uh, teaching lessons. And as, as so, music's been in this the whole way
0: through, oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. But just with a lot of yes, okay, honey.
1: Yeah, I was still performing, and I think that's why I was getting away with it because I could still play the guitar really well, even when I was drunk. Yeah. And like people just like thought it was a, a cool rock star thing to do, right? I mean, that's what we've been conditioned to, to think. Oh, there's like the drunk guy on the guitar, he's having a great time. And, like if his, his life must be really, really fun. Yeah, yeah. And there were some fun moments like that, but man, it like it's, it starts to become not fun quite quickly. Yeah. And it, and in my case, yeah, it was like 14, 14 years of like progressive downward spiral. Where when I was 29, I decided to do one of the really typical alcoholic moves, which is geographical relocation. Like if I just move across the country, yeah. then my problems will be solved, right? I just need a fresh start, sure. right? So I came out here, and uh, I had my my list of new rules, and the drinking part was on there. I was gonna ha- I had my limitations, and that lasted for about like five seconds. You know, the first the first time I I tried drinking again out here, it was just like one of the worst nights of my life and would have served as a perfectly good bottom, but it wasn't, it didn't quite do the trick. That was just the beginning of like a six year bender that I had, um, when, once I came here to Salem and this time was much worse than, than Baltimore. And, um, in Baltimore, it was more of like your typical 20 year old dude just out there, uh, acting like an a-hole and just getting into trouble and, you know, uh, drunk driving arrest and, getting into fights and stuff. And, but when I came to Salem, that's like, where like the darkness, like really started to like take hold in a much, much worse way because my, my tolerance was so high that I could get away with just doing day to day stuff, not getting into trouble. I didn't have a car, so I wasn't going to get arrested. And that was a calculated move. I was like, I'm not going to get a car because I know that I'll, I'll drive and you know, I'll get in trouble. So, and that will get in the way of my drinking. Yeah, every when you're when you're an addict, everything is to support the addiction. Yeah, it revolves around that if one thing. So having a car would have been very convenient, but I knew that it would end badly, and then I wouldn't be able to drink. So like, I need to, I need to, every everything is 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 done in order to support the addiction. You make just enough money to be able to like, in my case, pay your rent and then drink, and then there's like eight bucks left over for like a two liter of soda and like two frozen pizzas you know it's like and that's yeah that's that's what my what my lifestyle was like you know so i was like just like a total total loser um and and even worse like my health was starting to deteriorate
0: because now you're you're, you're you weight yeah. a lot more
1: oh yeah yeah so i was i was over well over 300 pounds the the highest weight i ever saw on the scale was 306 although i do think it was higher than that because like there was quite a period longer after that 306 that i continued on with the lifestyle and i think i even got bigger than that but yeah 306 was the top uh weight that i saw i remember going to the doctor's office one time and they go to weigh you and like the regular scale like it it maxes out right that that could have been another good bottom moment but it wasn't they had to pull out like the the special like steel scale from the wall to to for the over three hundred pound people and it was like total total humiliation but it's like that that certainly didn't do the trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just kept going on the way that I was. And then it was in the last year of my drinking that yeah. that things started to get total pure hell. Because I would wake up every single day coughing up blood. Mm-hmm. And that's when it was just like okay. It's like now now you're dying. Yeah. Now you're dying. And this is like the insanity of the alcoholism where I would wake up every day, you cough up blood, and depending on how much blood I coughed up, I would measure like, okay, like it was only a little bit today, so things should be things are looking looking all right, so I'll go ahead and drink. And then on other days it would be a lot. And you cough up a lot of blood. And it's like, uh oh. Like, well I better not stop drinking because if I stop too abruptly, I'll die from with the withdrawals. So either okay. way, your mind said, uh,
0: "Just keep drinking."
1: Yeah, just keep drinking. That was the answer. Just keep, just keep drinking. It's like it, it really is just like a like a demon just like slowly torturing you to the lowest point before it just like takes you out completely. Um, so that went on for like a year, right? And and the, the worst of it, as far as the physical, was that there was like th- probably three different episodes where I would wake up with a horrible feeling in my stomach, like deep in my stomach. was it wasn't really pain, but it was just like deep discomfort burning kind of thing. And you run into the bathroom because you think you, know, you need to relieve yourself, right? And you run into the bathroom to do what we all do in the bathroom. And it's like, but only the only thing that comes out is blood. It's a massive amount of blood. I remember just going to, like, going to clean myself, and you pull back a hand just, like, covered in blood. And I remember just sitting there thinking, like, I'm going to die like this. I'm going to die like this. And and I'm thinking, like, okay, maybe it's a fluke. You know, so just, it only happened one time. Like, an hour later, it comes out again. This would go on for days. And I was still performing like this right and i would i would be out at um i was playing a lot of this place shot at the time it just got um bought up by some other people but i remember just holding myself up at the bar because like i was about to lose consciousness because i was losing so much blood and i i hear the story all the time now of people losing their life that way um either through either through bleeding out one end or the other and i basically had had both so that's why I'm very uh, serious when I say like I'm in the in in the miracle category the the should be dead multiple times over and I take it very very seriously that my my life has been spared. Now that happened multiple times and I still didn't stop. I still didn't stop. Um, I had a um, an experience um, that I was very uh, desperate. And I called out to God and just said, "Show me something. Show me something."
0: Before this, real quick, did God have a place in your life that, uh growing up, or is this like the very first time? I'm like, okay, God.
1: Lord. No, I, I I grew I grew up Catholic um, and always always believed. Um, but I think I had just had a very arrogant, uh, view. I just thought that I could get away with anything. I had no understanding of like what, what the rules were. Yeah. And I was just like, well, I went to Berkeley and I worked really hard. I should just be able to like, you know, why isn't this thing happening for me? Like I just had this horrible, arrogant attitude. Um, and I thought that everyone should just be super stoked on me, uh, the way that I was. Yeah. I mean, it was, a uh, it was this, this, it was this arrogance, but at the, at the core of it was like a deep self-hatred. Um, and it's, I guess it's kind of complicated to, to pick that all apart. Um, but that's, that's essentially what it was. It was like this, uh, the superiority complex, um, that was masking like a deep insecurity. Um, and I was using alcohol to, to feel that fake confidence that I wanted to have that I get to enjoy now as a sober person for real. But man, it took a while to be able to get that <laughs> because, like, when you get sober, it's like you're not feeling so hot about yourself at the beginning. It, take, it takes a while. Um, but yeah, I had a I had an experience where where I talked. Um, I had a I was talking to God, and and um, but actually, to circle back, like I, I absolutely had a belief, and and as far as the the Christian uh, faith element. I was always just talking more directly to God instead of following the footsteps of Christ. So that came later on in recovery, where I started going to church again, and now I consider myself like an ardent follower of of Christ. But I was always very much connected to to God and mm-hmm. the the idea of of Him. So so I had this this really deep experience where I felt connected and he basically said to me in very clear terms like you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams like i have something for you to do and like we and i was seeing like the, the whole sky open up to me and like every benevolent force out in the universe and i had this this unbelievable experience that's really hard to describe but he said like you can you can have it all and even more than you thought but you have to stop drinking like you can't drink and that was the that was the first time that I stopped for any considerable amount of time that was like 28 29 days I stopped drinking after that but then I I went back one more time because like I thought I had it under control I was like okay like I had this experience and like I think I'm cool now like I, I just I I hadn't admitted to myself that I was an alcoholic yet um A friend of mine had brought over i had been kicked out of my apartment that i was in at the time and i moved into this horrible little studio and a friend of mine brought over like a, a housewarming gift of like a six pack of beer and i thought like i thought okay this is a good test for my new way of thinking and my new way of mind because i've got this under control now right i just had my big experience and so I had one and I was like, okay, this is like, I'm cool. And then we go out to a couple bars and, you know, one after another, after another, and then you get home and you drink the rest of the six pack. And the next day I was back on it. And that started, that started like an eight day bender where at the end of that eight days, I ended up outside of one of the popular Salem, uh, bars at like two in the morning and I couldn't move. And that was the first time that it happened to me that I'd like lost use of my body, but my mind was still going with all this insane drinking. And I was doing like 30 to 35 drinks a day on average with all this, like insane drinking. Like I was in a blackout drinker. And I think that's like almost as bad as it is not like, because, you know, I remember everything, right? It's like some of the blackout people, it's like, it's a bad thing when you black out cause you can't remember, but at least you don't have to remember like all the horrible stuff that you did. But, uh, in my case, I didn't, I never blacked out. And in this case I was laying there motionless and I couldn't, I could not move. And I was like, Oh my God, this has never happened. My mind is still going and I'm seeing the people walking by me and the way that they looked at me. And they're just like, just like the disgust that they had for me as I laid there as one of these people on the street now. And I'm, looked over and i saw like another lost soul passed out on the street like we see every day here in salem and i looked over and i said to myself there you go manny like you you've arrived you are now one of these people and at that moment uh because i still had some friends in town like the the security guy who was a very large, insanely strong guy managed to pick up over 300 pounds of dead weight and load me into a cab. And uh, I made it back to my apartment. And I remember literally crawling on my hands and feet to get to my front door. It took me like 30 minutes to be able to operate the key to get into my apartment because I was so messed up. And then I just like fell like into my couch, passed out for a few hours. I woke up. I drank a 12 pack of beer because I wanted that to be that. No, that was the withdrawal because I was like, okay, this is going to be the last thing I drink because I don't want to die from the withdrawal. So I'm going to come down a little bit. Um, that 12 pack was the last thing I ever drank. And then the next day I went into my first meeting and started the process of recovery.
0: Well, Manny, this is, uh, this is awesome. And I can't wait to see the birth of happiness. Uh, I can't wait to see you live. Um, yeah, you got to bring something great right to the city, hopefully to the, to the nation.
1: And can I just say one, one more thing too about the, the recovery process is that the, the thing that I learned almost immediately was that living sober in the process of recovery is a practice. And it's not like you go into this and then you recover and then you're done. Oh, I'm all better. It's not like having a surgery or something. It's adopting a new way of life a new way of thinking that's an everyday practice. You have to decide to practice it every day. It's very much like going to the gym. Um, you can get into awesome shape and then lose it quickly if you stop doing the work. Or then playing guitar. Playing the guitar. Elon, You obviously still practice all but Sure, yeah, and I, pra- I, I practice uh, music, I practice my fitness, and the fitness is a good analogy because everyone can relate to like how easy it is to get out of shape even once you get into really good shape um the spiritual fitness is the same deal and that's the term we use in in recovery and but the the thing with recovery is if you get lazy and you stop practicing the result can be deadly and often is you know practice practice my friends practice that's my that's my
0: main message is practice well said you know uh being in the programs uh summa 88 you know in your head you know valor the whole mentoring thing, Mr. Paxton from high school. Mm-hmm. Think about all those people who have mentored you along the way and mm-hmm. makes you who you are today. On your own, do you think you could ever have made it?
1: No, definitely not. Yeah, I and mean, that's um, that's a really important part of the message too. In fact, the first song on our album is going to be called "Reach Out," and the whole point of the song is to reach out for help because it. It, it is on the individual to do the work, and that's part of what's missing in this whole conversation of what happens here in Salem yeah. with all the people that we have out on the street. It's like, yes, we want to help them, obviously, but there has to be participation from the individual. You have to participate in your own rescue. Um, the amount of people who have helped me through this whole process has been extraordinary, extraordinary. However, I I do think that people attract people to help them if they are willing to be helped. Yeah. Um it's it's the it's those who are not willing to accept the help that that really have the the main the main issue and and the question will be for our society is like at what point do we start to insist, you know. Yeah, yeah because you we I I was becoming a burden on the rest of society, and that's the truth, you know. I was like of just taking and taking and taking and not contributing. Um, and my behavior put, uh, created a lot of problems for, for other people. And and I'm really, really fortunate that, you know, whether I was behind the wheel of a car or anything else that the really terrible things didn't happen. I was very fortunate in that, in that sense. But, um, when you behave this way, you do become a burden to the rest of society and it needs to be deemed as unacceptable at a certain point. Um,
0: that's interesting coming from, from you who feel like you were there. So I was there. You were yeah. remember just and that, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and sometimes we have to hit rock bottom, maybe more than once, to to have like a little humility. You know, pride and arrogance and cockiness and, you know, doing myself is not the answer. But realizing you need help. Uh, maybe you recognize your friend who picked you up, put you in the cab. Maybe that was a trigger for you. Perhaps. i helped you. I don't know. But mm-hmm. somewhere along the way, somebody helped, and you, you're now remembering who those people are. Well,
1: it was it was more so about when I showed up to recovery, um, and I made it clear that I was very serious about getting well. I mean, people who I had never met before that knew nothing about me, they had never seen me play a guitar, they didn't care about that element at all. I was immediately surrounded by people that were new people to me that started helping me just by giving me rides and... Offering to answer the phone whenever I needed to talk about this. And, and I mean, the recovery programs that are, are widely used. I mean, it takes a while to get the hang of it. There's a lot of information and you need, you need people to help you through it. And it's also so important to be around other people who have been there. Cause when I go into a recovery room, I can, I can talk about what it's like to live in hell. And i see a bunch of people nodding and saying "Uh uh-huh uh-huh but when i'm hanging around normies like they're they they don't get it they don't quite get it and and, and nor should they they haven't been there and thank god for that but if you want to be able to pull other people out of hell you better know what the landscape is and that that requires uh some some experience Uh, when i've had a couple conversations with people on the streets and they always start talking about demons man they always start talking about demons i I'll never forget this one encounter I had with a young guy who was like freshly homeless, you knew because like you can tell when they have like a, all of their stuff and, and oh. yeah, exactly. And he, he was obviously in a very bad way. And I started talking to him about this stuff and like the darkness and everything. He was like, Oh my God, you see it. You see it. You can see it. No one else has been able to see it. I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about, bro. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I pointed him over to the UGM. I was like, if I were in your shoes, that is where I would go. Like day one, right? They they can they can help you, and who knows? He walked off in that direction. I can only hope that that he he took the advice. But you absolutely need help. But we also have to have the expectation of the individual to to do some work, and that's where you get your dignity back. Is when you start, and that's where that's when you start to to get some self respect. A lot of good hearted people have this idea that. If you just we just need to give them housing or we just need to give them a a a checking account. It's like no, if you would have taken me at the height of my addiction and given me a million dollars and a free apartment, it just would have killed me. It would have just sped up the process. If you would have introduced money into my situation, it's the worst possible thing you could have done for me. I had to learn how to live properly. I had to learn a new set of rules of how to conduct myself. I didn't understand how to live without alcohol. I had never learned how to behave properly. yeah.
0: Dude, man, this has been great. Uh, I, I appreciate you being on the to podcast today, just share your story. Hey, if a couple of things, uh, is there anything left that you wanted to share that maybe you just want to cover And then how would somebody reach out to you if they want to hear a little more of your story, if they want to learn about, uh, how to be a, a student of yours before coming to one of your concerts, how would they do that? Uh
1: yeah, my main website is MannyMartinezGuitar.com, dot com, and you can also find me on social media, uh, Instagram, Birth of Happiness nineteen. You can search for me on Facebook, and you'll see a picture of me like with my guitar. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so MannyMartinezGuitar.com. dot com. Look for me on social media. You can uh, Google Birth of Happiness or Google Manny Martinez Guitar, and I'm just always around here in Salem. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. So yeah,
0: well, cool. Thanks for being part of the show. Thanks for you listening every week. We appreciate you. We hope and pray that this uh, podcast will impact you. Uh, Please share with somebody that uh, you think needs to hear this story that maybe is addicted to alcohol or drugs and needs a new life. So life can happen. God can do all things. And this is a great story. 34 years old, guy is 38 and uh, he's a new guy. So thank you very much. Have a great week.